When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Paul Caruana Galizia. This is episode three of My Mother's Murder. In the second episode, we heard about what my mother Daphne endured over her 30-year career as a journalist. How she and we as a family suffered arson attacks, vandalism and unrelenting online harassment. How she was even chased down a street by a mob. And we heard how, after Joseph Muscat was first elected Prime Minister in 2013, the abuse didn't just escalate, it took on new forms with his officials filing dozens of crippling libel suits and weaponizing Malta's institutions against her and against anyone intent on fighting corruption. It was this climate of abuse that, in the end, made her assassination possible and that made our fight for justice so difficult. Right after the murder, we had to start speaking up because we could see that what was happening was that the Maltese government was, from the very moment my mother was assassinated, trying to spin the assassination as something inconsequential or something that the government had under its control. That was my eldest brother, Matthew, who we heard from in episode two. He was at home in Bidnia working alongside my mother when she was murdered. At some point, I went back to the house to put on shoes and lock the door. That's the only thing I remember. In the evening, we found out that the duty magistrate who was charged with holding the inquest was someone that my mother had written about over many years. The first job of a duty magistrate is to investigate impartially. But on that day, we had a magistrate on duty who had sued my mother for libel. So unbelievably, Within hours of my mother's assassination, my eldest brother Matthew and my father ran to court to ask her to recuse herself. And this, this first battle, marked a never-ending campaign for justice. We normally hear about car bombings in war zones or in the Europe of decades ago. But in Malta, the car bombing that killed my mother was the sixth in two years. And like suddenly we heard like an explosion, like boom. By the time it came to my mother's assassination, 
We got used to seeing car bombings in the news. The thing is, the previous five car bombings were all linked to criminal gangs taking out each other. And when it came to my mother's murder, the use of a car bomb led people down that path. And so then when, when our own mother was, was assassinated using a remotely triggered car bomb, a lot of people continued with that thinking, you know, and followed the same pattern and thought, okay, this must be diesel smugglers because that's the signature style. That was my middle brother, Andrew. I spoke to him over the phone when he was at home in France. The really incredible thing about these car bombings is that not a single one of them has been solved. The bomb destroys all evidence, and when targets survive, they're too scared to talk for fear of more reprisals. One man had his legs blown off, and to this day, hasn't spoken a word. The use of a car bomb on my mother immediately filled us with fear. We know that the police had failed to solve a single one of the preceding car bombings, And that, coupled with our mistrust of the police force, left us feeling dismayed. We felt stuck because there was no one to turn to. We obviously couldn't trust the police. This is something we inherited from our mother, but it's also something that, you know, we learned ourselves through through painful experience. Like when the police showed up to arrest our mother before the elections in 2013, the way that the police used to, you know, give her kind of vindictive parking tickets. So we thought, how can we develop a relationship of trust with the police? But as a family, we had one stroke of luck early on. The FBI happened to be in Malta on a training exercise. And when they saw my mother's assassination, they approached the Malta police force with an offer of help. The police force couldn't refuse. And their involvement led to an unexpectedly early breakthrough in my mother's case. Maltese court has charged three men with October's car bomb murder of the journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia. The three suspects among a group of 10 arrested this week. One morning, early in December 2017, I was lying in bed when I received a text message. It suggested that arrests were to be made that morning in my mother's case. And for the first few minutes, I thought this can't be right. It was the first I had heard of any developments. But then I went to read the news and I saw that the police and the armed forces of Malta were raiding an abandoned potato shed in Marsa, a harbour town in the southeast of Malta. At that potato shed, the police arrested three men for murder, Vincent Muscat and the brothers Alfred and George de Giorgio. I just want to point out that there aren't many surnames in Malta, and Vince Muscat has no relation to Joseph Muscat. As a family, we found the arrests confusing. We weren't warned of them in advance, and while the three men are known career criminals, they had no obvious link to my mother and her work. Yeah, there were sort of three people who, essentially, you'd say were known to police. They've been accused, but mostly not been convicted. They had a few essentially fairly minor convictions to their name, but they were often picked up when there were some big cases of armed robbery or assassination murder having taken place. When they were arrested, it was almost like round up the usual suspects. That was Stephen Gray, 
a journalist with Reuters. Stephen has been following my mother's case from day one. They they were they kind of lived by the water. They they had a, a kind of waterside hangout, chairs in an old fridge full of beer cans and cigarette ashtray, uh, the skeletons of fish of hanging off the ceiling. It was a very kind of real mariner's place, you know, uh, right by where one of them had a yacht moored up. They had quite expensive cars. They essentially had almost no income, but they obviously had a bunch of cash. And they were the people. And you can hear so from Stephen's description of these three men why we would be surprised by their arrest. My mother never reported on the men and never reported on their underworld. When you look at what emerged about these people, you've, you've got to conclude that they were somewhat naive. You assume that they didn't have any reason themselves to kill Daphne, so they must have been commissioned. But they made some pretty basic errors and what they did to allow themselves to be identified, which lead you to conclude two things. One, they were used not to being properly investigated, right? And secondly, that they didn't expect this case to be of sort of international importance, the point that really serious investigators would come and identify them. Because you only have to watch, you know, police CSI to see the methods that the police used. It wasn't in the modern scheme of things that high tech. So they must have not really expected a serious look at that. And that's assuming that they were involved as accused, as alleged. But if that's all true, they must have felt that we've got some kind of protection here. What's more, the way in which they executed the crime was littered with basic errors. They used their phones. They moved everywhere with their phones. They used what you call burner phones, phones that are not registered to themselves personally. But they moved everywhere with their normal phones and their burner phones at the same spot. They also, crucially, the person accused of sending the text that detonated the bomb, George de Giorgio, he actually used a burner phone to call a known contact to get it, the phone refilled. So that was the... A crucial thing it kind of crossed the line you have to keep these systems separate and once you cross that line then you could then see the network of the burner phone and you'd be able to pull the whole thing apart so big mistake in a way you can't really blame these three men the sloppy approach they took with their phones would have gone unnoticed by the malta police force which doesn't have the technology to troll to thousands tens of thousands of phone calls and find their precise locations but the fbi did the FBI found, through phone data, that Vincent Muscat and the De Giorgio brothers weren't just circling our house hours ahead of the murder, but were monitoring the house in the weeks leading up to it, just as Matthew had suspected. So the thing about Bidnia is it's very rural, remote countryside. Very few people have any reason to go there. So what explanation could three men from Marsa have to circle our house for weeks leading up to a murder and then be present around the house on the day of the murder itself. So it looked like the FBI were really on to something. And when the police force continued to comb through the crime scene, they found that one of the De Giorgio's lookout posts, a cigarette butt, with Alfred De Giorgio's DNA on it. And then, a few weeks later, they found the killer message. The message that was sent from George De Giorgio's phone to detonate the bomb under my mother's car seat. The evidence presented in court against these three men, shortly after they were arrested, appeared strong. But it was still confusing to us. What motive did these three men have to kill a journalist who had spent the past five years reporting on financial crime? 
It appeared that these three men were just a cog in a machine. A machine that maybe they didn't even know they were part of. What I did feel was the sense of, of emptiness, you know, that these three people had absolutely no idea who our mother was, most likely. It almost felt like the police had staged an entire theatre production around arresting a piece of equipment that led to my mother's death. So insignificant did these people feel to me that the police might as well have told us we found a piece of plastic that was used in the explosive device. It meant absolutely nothing. A lot of people said we should have been happy that there was progress in the case. And obviously we want to find out who was behind it. But no one will ever experience feelings of happiness for finding out or for seeing the faces of the people who murdered their own mother. Happiness is not something that ever enters into your, your emotions when it comes to something like this. We knew this was related to her work. But my mother was working on so many different investigations, there were dozens of possible suspects and motives. It was impossible to know where to start. We didn't know where to start, but fortunately we weren't working on this alone. We, so we first met after my mother was killed at this country house. I don't remember, I mean I have very vague memories of it. I don't know what you remember about that meeting. Yeah, I remember it really well. Um, we came to this house in the middle of nowhere and you were there at this really awful, traumatic time having security training. That was Juliette Garside, a journalist at The Guardian. Juliette, along with Stephen Gray, was among the first journalists we spoke to about my mother's work. We had come to the UK just three weeks after my mother's assassination. I just remember you were all three of you there with your aunt Cora, um, mm. you and Matthew and Andrew, thinking, what a force, what a unit these, this family is, these three sons and, and their aunt. You could have been in pieces, but you were in fight mode. That's really, um, it's kind of really heartening because we really didn't feel like we had it under control <laughs> at that point. <laughs> I felt like a total wreck. I think I hadn't slept in, in days. I mean, like you say, we were there for training, but really the main reason was just to get out of the country and get some breathing space yeah. Um, yeah. in between learning how to check a car for bombs. Wow. Uh, but anyway, there we are. The meetings we had with Juliet and Stephen at that country house led to the formation of the Daphne Project, an international consortium of investigative journalists from some of the world's leading news organisations. Their aim was to pick up on my mother's unfinished stories and complete her investigations. Like us, this group of journalists didn't know where to start. There were too many stories and there was too much material, so they divided up the work. Juliette started looking at Malta's highly suspicious energy deal. I was trying to understand a very important deal which involved the creation of essentially a new source of electricity on the island. Under Muscat's government, Malta sold off its energy assets to a large foreign bidder. It was one of Muscat's key pledges in 2013 and became a symbol of the flood of foreign money into Malta. There were some serious questions about the way that deal was structured and the way that the Azeris were cut into it. While the gas was supplied by an Azerbaijani company, 
the power station in Malta was owned and operated by a company called Electrogas. And here's the important bit. Jorgen Fenech was a director of Electrogas. Remember, he's the man I talked about in episode one, who was arrested for my mother's murder. So the deal was that the gas coming in each month to Malta on ships was being brought in by Shell. Everybody knows Shell. And they were getting the gas from places like Trinidad and Tobago. Mm -hmm. And they were selling it to Socar. And Socar was then selling it to the businessmen who ran Electrogas. And then Electrogas was selling it to the state. In that chain, one company had no obvious role, and that company was Sokar, Azerbaijan's oil and gas company. Because Shell could have gone directly to To, the Maltese company. To the Maltese company, Electrogas. So we spent some time looking for gas specialists, and they had a look at the contracts in the leak, and they said, this contract makes no sense. And part of the reason it makes no sense is because this deal makes Malta pay a fixed price to Socar over a really long period. And because the price was fixed rather high and the price of gas had fallen, Socar was pocketing the difference. Well, you have to ask who benefits. And I think that's very much what your mother was looking for. So we can see the Azeris benefit, Socar benefits to a certain extent. But I don't think for Azerbaijan... The amount of money they were pocketing from this was transformational Mm. or even emotive. I think what the Azeris wanted from Malta was money laundering. And maybe there were some people. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of the Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com. In Malta, who wanted money from the Azeris, kickbacks. That's always Mm. been the suspicion. We offer you this deal, cut you in, you give us some kickbacks. Was there any proof of this? Those are the threads we were pulling. As Juliet continued digging into the deal to understand how kickbacks might have worked, Stephen was pulling away at another thread. Daphne made, leveled an awful lot of accusations, you know, and I downloaded the blog, every article, trying to go through it and just look at what was she writing, what was she actually investigating, and what was sort of still unresolved what might be something where her continued existence on this planet made someone scared uh 17 black i was interested in that story because what was the story she came out all of a sudden and said there's this company 17 black and it's essentially at the the center of all corruption it's the way that 
I forget her exact phrase. It's the way that that the, the politicians are getting. Do you remember it? Yeah, it's how these crooks move money out of Dubai. He's talking about a blog post my mother uploaded in May 2017. It was cryptic, a kind of trailer about her next big investigation. She was referring to an offshore company that Malta's governing politicians used to move money around. And look, in her fashion, she didn't provide any evidence. She kind of left it there, and that became this focus of discussion. She didn't get all the details right. The company wasn't really registered in Dubai. It was registered in another part of the United Arab Emirates. Her investigation into 17 Black was an investigation that she would never get to finish and never get to see the significance of. At that sort of time, she was firing on a number of cylinders. But we were still very struck by that. But then it, it took on a new life when, in our investigation, we were able to get new emails from the Panama Papers. We got to the actual documentary proof that actually showed why 17 Black was important and why she might have said what she did about it. Because that was an email that showed that the two people in the government who had Panama companies. This is a story that, if you like, made Daphne famous in, in Europe, out, outside of Malta. These two people, one a minister, Conrad Mitzi, and the other, the prime minister's right-hand man, chief of staff, most senior official, really, Keith Shembury. So she had flagged these people as being corrupt. She was convinced they were corrupt. Well, in the emails we found, which came from the Panama Papers, we saw a discussion by accountants showing that they expected these two Panama companies owned by these two government figures to be receiving money from two companies in Dubai, one of which was 17 Black. At that point, we got word that the authorities were getting indications of who might be the owner of that company and that the owner was a certain businessman called Jürgen Fennick who was a director of Electrogas. Remember, Electrogas is the company that Juliet found was overcharging Malta for gas. And this is where her story meets Stephen's. Um, but I didn't know much about the, the character. He just seemed like a, a rich playboy. And at that point, for me, the whole thing kind of clicked. And I don't think that it was based other than a gut instinct, but I just thought, do you know what? Everything else, all these other people, whatever mud she, you know, whatever things she had on them, she'd already thrown, you know. She, she, it, it was already out there. In some ways, they'd survived it. They'd shown they could survive. What we're really looking for is a big secret, you know, something which would make it worth someone's while to kill Daphne. And while the journalists never set out to investigate my mother's murder, it looked like they had a possible motive. You know, I, I did get a briefing from some very high-ranking person in Europe who said that keep going with what you're doing because our indications are this whole thing goes up to the top. I know this is complicated, 
That's because these schemes are designed to be. So let's recap. 17 Black was a company owned by Jorgen Fenech. It was registered in the United Arab Emirates, with no real purpose and no staff, and that makes you question what it's there for. Just days after Labour came to power in 2013, Keech Kembri and Konrad Mitzi had set up companies in Panama. It's a notoriously secretive tax haven, and they had no obvious reason to own companies there. What emerged through the hard work of the Daphne project was that the companies set up by Keech Kembri and Konrad Mitzi were set up with a sole purpose in mind, to receive money from 17 black, and not a small amount, 5,000 euros per day. Stephen describes Jorgen Fenech as a rich playboy, but in Malta, he's a lot more than that. I asked my brother Andrew to give us some more detail. So Malta has this huge corporation called Tomas Group that built the country's first skyscraper. And when, when the son of the founder of this group, one of the sons died, one of his sons, Jorgen Fenech, took over the control of the company. And Jorgen Fenech decided to branch out into, into gaming, um, so online gambling, casinos, and eventually in the lead up to the 2013 election, also energy, something in which his family business had no experience. I call it a family business, but it was the closest thing that Malta had to a multinational company. And Jorgen Fenech was the closest thing Malta had to an oligarch. The other two characters Stephen talks about are Conrad Mitzi and Keech Cambry. We first met Conrad Mitzi in the last episode. He was the energy minister, later tourism minister, that my mother exposed. Mitzi owned a Panama company, already highly secretive, and sheltered it in a New Zealand trust, adding another layer of secrecy and making it harder to identify that Mitzi is the ultimate owner. One of the main planks of the Labour Party's election campaign preceding the 2013 elections was a gas-fired power station. And Conrad Mitzi was the face of this power station. He claimed to be um, a former energy consultant in London who had worked on cross-border energy projects in the past. And so he brought this sort of credible management face to the Labour Party's unbelievable promises. And then when, when the Labour Party was elected to power, he became energy minister. When the Panama Papers were first reported by our mother, he became minister within the office of the prime minister. And since then, he's been hovering very close to the heart of government in one capacity or another. And Keith Schembri, I almost don't know where to start. Muscat's chief of staff and best friend from school. Joseph Muscat, his childhood friend, was the person who first brought him from business into politics. He, he made him the head of the Labour Party's successful election campaign. People close to him say that Schembri masterminded the election campaign. And after Labour won power, he became Joseph Muscat's chief of staff. He rose from running a paper distribution business to become the architect of corruption under Muscat's rule, forging shadowy links with criminals and oligarchs. 
As the Daphne project continued to make progress, my family and I came head to head with the government of Malta. Every one of our attempts to seek justice for my mother was met with constant obstacles. So from the moment our mother was assassinated and the moment that we began being targeted by the same people who were targeting her, there was only a matter of maybe two days. Immediately we had to get the magistrate inquiring into her assassination to recuse herself because of a conflict of interest. After that, we found out that the person heading the criminal investigation was the husband of a senior minister within government. So we had to get him to withdraw from the case. The government appealed and we had to fight the appeal. Eventually, it turned out that this man, Silvio Valletta, was a close friend of Jorgen Fenech. The government media constantly, constantly portraying us as a family bent on taking out its revenge against their own country. And then on the PR front, that was maybe the most painful battle that we had to fight because it's so direct, it's so personal. So our older brother, Matthew, he was blamed for our own mother's assassination either because he left the car parked outside, as if that, you know, anyway. Every day in the months that followed those December 2017 arrests brought a fresh crisis for us as a family. We learned about the murder investigation from leaks to the press. We became subjects of a state-sponsored harassment campaign just like my mother. It was exhausting, it was demoralizing, and it felt like we would never get anywhere, and it felt like we would never get a chance to grieve. Because if we ever wanted justice, there was no time to stop and process what had happened. And we, we realized that we needed to be more strategic, so we, we started to think about what our major campaign focus should be. And we decided it should be a public inquiry. So a panel of judges or former judges examining the circumstances surrounding our mother's assassination. It is hoped that the Prime Minister will respond to today's request by setting up a public inquiry. He has nothing to fear but the truth. In Malta, there are suspects in custody. But so far, that has not answered the question of who may have ordered the killing of 53-year-old And Daphne. getting to the bottom of whether the state was responsible for her death, whether it could have been prevented, and whether there was any individual or, or state complicity. And we shouldn't even have had to campaign for this because public inquiries should be triggered automatically when there's any kind of suspicion of state failure. So instead of triggering a public inquiry, the government fought us every single step of the way. The main argument was that initially the case has been closed. We've arrested three hitmen. They're, they're facing trial and we don't want anything to get in the way of this trial. We don't want any kind of interference. I started to feel like the truth would never come out. But when I spoke to Andrew recently, I learned that he had felt differently. In October 2019, two years had gone by since our mother's assassination. And since then, there was, there was no real progress in the police investigation since the arrest of the three hitmen. But there was something 
strange about the environment in Malta and something strange about how society dealt with our mother's assassination. And it reminded me of something that that someone had told me very early on, that when a crime is so great, the cover-up requires almost a reshaping of society because there's not only the the crime itself that needs to be covered up, there are all the things around it. It kind of warps institutions, politics, social structures, relationships. And so people start to notice something strange happening to their own country. And so I always believe that it reaches a point where the truth just bursts out because society would have to change too much to contain it. It turns out Andrew was right, but I had no idea what was about to hit us when we returned to Malta in November 2019. I thought this was a, you know, this is a film noir. You kind of know who's responsible, but nobody gets caught. You know, and they sort of walk off without justice. I think yesterday was a defining moment for our country, following the arrest of the alleged mastermind of the assassination of Daphne. The feeling was a feeling that I've never experienced before. And I think... It was the first time in two years that people maybe saw a light at the end of the tunnel. My mother's murder is written by me, Paul Caruana Galizia. The producer is Gary Marshall. Original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer is Kerry Thomas. Vincent Muscat, Alfred De Giorgio, George De Giorgio, and Jorgen Fenech have been charged with my mother's assassination. They have all pleaded not guilty. Fenech has requested multiple presidential pardons for the crime. Keith Schembri and Conrad Mitzi deny allegations that they use their offshore companies for kickbacks. Mitzi denies any association with the company 17 Black. The homicide investigation and criminal proceedings are ongoing. Hello, I'm Steph from Tortoise. Paul works right next to me in the office, so I knew a little about his mother's story. But listening to Paul on this podcast, it really hit home what Paul carries with him on a daily basis, about what he and his family have endured. But the story's not over yet. Please do subscribe today through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you normally listen. And if you've been as moved as I have by what you've heard, do share it with friends and family. We want Daphne's story to be heard everywhere. Shares, likes, and recommendations all help. Thank you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.